Hello, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And Gabe, you have a study for our listeners out there yeah. to, to ponder. Yeah, well, f- first of all, we got a, uh, what was this? Here in Germany, a survey of 2,500 Germans on whether they would want to work four days a week instead of five. And this survey just for came this, out. Just this, came this out. week, yeah. For the same salary, would you want to do a four-day week? 73% said yes. I'm surprised it's only 73. 73? Yeah. I, it depends who you're asking. If you're if you're asking a, a you know the owners of businesses that number drops, but if you're asking regular employees yeah. only 2500 Germans these these are these people pay social insurance so they they're working they're full-time employees mm-hmm. would want to work 4 days a week instead of 5. And 27% said uh, no, no, I want the full 5. I want, I love that 5-day week. I'm all about that five day week. That's that's my thing. <laughs> yeah, this comes, of course, um, in the midst of a number of, of experiments around the world. One, that... yeah, the we'll be talking about one today done out of the of Cambridge University in the UK. But for, back to these Germans, um, why would they want to do it? They have more time for family, including childcare, hobbies, and volunteer work. That's that but, is not the first thing that comes to my mind. Volunteer work. No, a lot of although, what I would do with that it, extra it, what a, Friday or a lot of clubs here in Germany. I was just thinking about this, um, the involvement in clubs and how often you have meetings and activities together. I don't know if that constitutes or if that counts as volunteer work, but yeah, a lot of a lot of civil engagement. Let me put it that way. Yeah, that one extra day would allow you to get a lot of things off your to do list. Yeah. Do them. Cambridge looked into this together with Boston College, the think tank autonomy, and apparently the UK government, because this is part of their four-day week campaign. Hmm. And the results of this gigantic study have just been uh, presented to lawmakers. So this is something that apparently the British government is definitely looking into in a big way, put throwing a lot of money at, because 61 companies took part. For the past, well, started they started in June 2022. So last June, they mm-hmm. began this. Mm-hmm. Did six months where all employees at the company worked 20% less. So just worked four days instead of five. All, apparently, according to the results, all productivity goals were retained. Uh, as a matter of fact, they made even more revenue. 1%, 1.4% more revenue made by all these 61 companies on average. And here it is. Seven of ten workers reported less stress, less burnout hmm. in the workplace. So three out of ten are still, or are, are probably feeling like, well, I've I have to do the same amount of work in four days instead of five. So I'm so their stress levels haven't changed. But either, generally, I, either reporting no no change or more, mm-hmm. not not clear. But seven out of ten said less. That's a positive thing. Sixty-five percent reduction in sick days. Paid sixty-five percent. That's huge. That is huge. Fifty-seven percent drop in people quitting. Workers quitting their jobs. So that's clearly an indicator that. that although, I, although I suspect that that number might change if every company were doing it. If you're if you're at one of the lucky sixty-one companies, I think you said, yeah. where they're doing this experiment. Of course, you're thinking, I'm not. I'm not leaving. I, yeah. I only have to work for it. Why would I go work somewhere where I have to work five days? I'm working yeah. four. I'm going to stick with this four-day <laughs> yeah. thing. Retention went through the roof. Yeah. Yeah. Product, productivity is the same. They're making more revenue. The companies themselves, clearly liking it. Of the 61 companies that took part, 56 have confirmed that they will continue with the four-day week. 18 of those are going to make that change permanent. Wow. This is already a thing for these companies that, that did this. In the end, it was 2,900 employees. And this is, I think, where 
where it's important? What kind of jobs were these? I was going to say, if yeah. you look at the companies that said, nope, this didn't work for us, I bet they're of a different category. This is all the companies involved. So online retailers, financial service providers, animation studios, one local fish and chip restaurant, consultancies, housing, IT, skincare, recruitment, hospitality, marketing, okay. so and let's healthcare. Go, let's go to the fish and chips because that's very <laughs> British and this was a British study. Yeah. I would imagine that's the type of company that suffers direct immediate consequences that, from the four-day week. That was my first question. How in the world do you keep productivity or how do you hit... Yeah. How do you make as much money working four days instead of... <laughs> the, the human being isn't standing there on that Friday. There, there are no fish and chips to be served. So probably very dependent on the sector. Factory workers, miners, garbage collectors, greenskeepers. Yeah, for, for, for jobs Not exactly that, that require sure that human works. beings to, to, to be moving things and placing things. I, I don't know how else to say that. Yeah. Those are going to suffer or take an economic hit by going to the four-day week, work week, whereas... Uh, your jobs office, like ours here? Well, office jobs where you have people sitting at, at their desks at computers for hours on end. I mean, you hear that. On, you, you read it online. You hear it in the halls. Oh, you know, didn't do much this afternoon or, or this yeah. morning or something. There, there are periods of the day that are not as productive. And if, if those are the hours that are being substituted with time off, then productivity should stay the same. If, but, if let, Let's take our, I, I hate to do this, become self-referential, but if... Would a four-day week work for us? Well, we're we, in the studio. We have to be in the studio at least three days a week. We could, we could ask our boss and, and try it. We're biased. We're How biased about on this if, one. For, for the sake of science, we just start. We just do this. Yeah, and, and see if there Let's are. Just skip one day. We get the same salary. <laughs> obviously, what a pitch! You know, you're not preaching to the choir at all here. Sa- yeah, and this we'll is just see unscripted science. Yeah, uh, we'll just see if there's a twenty percent drop in the number of podcast episodes or not. Yeah, and It'll... then there was the, one last thing here out of South Australia. They're looking into the the effects on physical health of the three day weekend. Got to go up. Thirteen month uh, study there uh, across the board. It, it is much much better for our health to work four days a week. If we get this three-day weekend, uh, more, more sleep, more physical activity, less sedentary, and it surveys on, on well-being, people who had the three-day weekend are doing a lot better. Of course. I've heard people say that before. One day for the family, one day for friends, and one day for me. That, that, that sounds kind of nice, the three-day weekend. Yeah, so um, let's see where that goes, see if it's, uh, if it's adopted here at Science Unscripted. In the meantime... You've got a bunch of papers there. What do we got here? I've got a whole study that I've read through. And um, I once in a while, we have a lot of abstract stuff or uh, deep-thinking studies, mm-hmm. and this is not one of them. This is a simple, practical study for all of our listeners out there that I hope will make your day happier, meaning change your mood positively and will reduce anxiety and all of that in two minutes what a pitch that's my pitch for you it is 1532 it's 332 no i'm not PM. saying i'm not saying i can do that in in, well, in do two it on minutes me. no not do it in, on me. no no i'm saying they can do it in two minutes okay so we're gonna you're yes. gonna talk them through it uh so this is a study various max planck institutes there are a lot of them out there and these happen to be in austria or in germany and basically what they were doing is they've, they they forced people to look at online art. So the same famous paintings that are hanging in museums all around the world that you don't really have access to, a lot of those, not all of them, have been digitized. And as they say right here in the paper, um, a lot of studies out there have already shown that if you go out there and look at, at art, it's better for you. 
or if you're exposed to art in other places, you're, you're better off. I'll give you two examples here. A short visit to an art museum over a lunch break can offer a respite from a stressful day, improving self-reported stress and mood, lowering cortisol levels, etc. Hospital rooms with artwork result in happier, less stressed, and less medicated patients than those in rooms without art. Art makes us human beings happier, but we're not, hopefully most of you are not in a hospital room right now, and not everyone has access to, to a museum yeah. right immediately. I've got a bunch of questions right now. So what, what kind of art, first of all? Second of all, how did, how did they measure this? A single painting. Which Cloud, one? Cloud Monet's Water Lilies. Water Lilies. This okay. is one that is so famous that I couldn't believe it when I actually clicked in and followed it to the source and looked at it because it was hanging in my home, my home life, a print. Yeah. Uh, obviously. Um, you don't have the actual <laughs> Monet? <laughs> the actual one is, uh, is, is in the UK. And um, anyway... This print, it's when you click in, and for anyone out there who wants to follow up on this, this is the Monet Water Lily Google Art and Culture Exhibition. It's a very, specifically, that's what they sent people to. Okay. And you go there, and you look at it, and um, it's one of those scroll pages. I don't know if you know what I mean. You go to a website, and as you scroll down... It just goes down with you? Yeah. Follows your mouse? Yeah, Yeah, and the image never changes. And in fact, in this particular case, it zooms in on a couple of the elements and explains them. The, the bridge, Japanese influence. This was an actual, um, I think in, in Monet's garden, he was in love with his own garden, and that's what he was painting. And this is what people looked at for two minutes a day? And were they supposed no, to think no, no, about it? No, no, no. It was, just it, look- this, for, for the participants, this is one of the best deals I've ever heard of. If you were yeah. one of the, ultimately, 240 university students in Vienna, you got college credit for participating in this experiment. And the average time was two minutes. So you go in there for two minutes and, and you look through this. Of course, they had, the, um, they had a survey beforehand, yeah. one separate survey. It was, I think, 20, 20 questions on mood, mood. And, and six on anxiety. So they took that before. Then they go and they look at Cloud Monet's water lilies and learn something about it. Two minutes later, on average, they go back and they take the same surveys again. Okay, and these Max Planck researchers compared... The... the before and after answers. Okay. One caveat, and they kind of hinted at this in the paper, but I thought it was maybe more serious than they did, is did participants know, right? This is a, th- an experiment can be too simple. And so if you have taken a set of questions and then you look at a painting and then you take an, th- the same questions again and answer them, don't you probably know what you're answering? Or like what well, the, you're going to do some the, introspection. Well, like I'm sure that these you, Max Planck researchers want to know how, whether I'm feeling better after of, looking at Claude Monet. Co- or, or of before. course, but one this would, look. The good, the, let me put it this way: the good thing about the study it was the second time that they did it. Yeah. So this has been done twice. Same results. What I would say it, it, where there's room for improvement is one thing you can do with experiments is to trick participants so they don't know what you're testing. What they said is, you know, there were so many questions. And they were very varied, lots of adjectives that they probably didn't really know what we were getting at. Maybe they did. Um, one accidentally humorous thing I also found in here was that they had to disqualify four of the participants, four of these university kids, because they they looked at the art for fewer than 10 seconds. <laughs> well, attention spans are dwindling. Well, and so there, somewhere in Vienna, there were four kids. Basically, they could have gotten college credit for this thing. And they couldn't and even they do the two in, minutes. Yeah. They scrolled down as fast as they could, and then they were out of it. So... Yeah, um, basically... Any idea on why? Sorry, what art does yes. for our well-being? Yes. Um, what, what, what? Not in the way that you're asking it, though. So what they did was they realized when looking at this data that, hmm, 
some people have decent or significant, statistically significant improvements in mood and or reductions in anxiety. When they look at art. When they look at art. And, Why? And others don't. And the people who did not, or the difference between those people, let me go ahead and get the, uh, the exact phrase here, mm-hmm. is something that can be defined by the Aesthetic Responsiveness Assessment, A-R-E-A, area. Um, and what that means is basically it's, it's, a, it's a quiz. I've given you... We all answer that differently. Yes. Okay. What, and, is, it, what is it after? How we appreciate an image or the beauty of an image? Here's or? some examples. Quote, I notice beauty when I look at art. Another one, I am emotionally moved by music. I experience joy, serenity, or other positive emotions when looking at art. So if you answer yes to those questions, then by spending roughly two minutes looking at that Monet painting and understanding it better, you will probably improve your mood and reduce your anxiety. There are people who don't. That's also fine. They, they, there are people who you, put a, you go to a museum and, and they, they hate it. It does nothing for them. That happens. One of our listeners, Cheryl Finfrock, sent me a painting, um, I'm, if our listeners can remember that. And I, I hung it up in my bathroom. I bet you I spend – there are some days when I spend more than two minutes looking at that. I wonder if, that, if Cheryl Finfrock has made me – has improved my mood over time, oh, has made me well, a happier okay. person because I, I look at that art – and now I'm a, a happier person so, because of Cheryl Finfrock? Well, here's, here's the thing. Let's be very, very limited. Let's be good scientists about what the study can say. Because I, that was one of the open questions that I had. They looked at one. One painting. It was Claude Monet's Water Lilies. And the reason they chose that, they put it right here in the paper, is because landscapes and water tend to improve human moods. Now, if they'd taken a different one, uh, the one that popped up in my head, I don't even know if I can pronounce his name, Her- Hieronymus Bosch. Do you know that guy? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> the, the Last Judgment. Uh, uh, what else? That's pretty graphic. The, the, the Garden of, of Lusts. Yeah. I don't know if you spent two minutes looking at that, what, if, if that would have the same effect. Or how about some World War I-inspired you know, German art? Yeah, it, do, it probably does depend on the piece of art. And what I found really fascinating, Otto this, Dix. Is, this is my, my final caveat, but this is really important. If any of you are going to go out there and try this on yourselves, one completely unexpected finding was um, there was a difference between the students, these were all students, who did this on their smartphones versus laptops versus desktops. Okay, what was that difference? And basically don't do this on a smartphone. Huh. That, that's the conclusion. Use a laptop or a desktop computer, maybe something about the size, that rectangular shape, which kind of looks like a painting anyway in the horizontal mode. Um, something about that changed the effect. It was enough that the authors themselves said this is significant and it's something to look into why. That's the case. That that wasn't the purpose of this study. Well, you're not moving around. You're probably sitting down if you're looking at a desktop computer or at a laptop. And on your phone, you might be moving, doing something else. Yeah, yeah. In any case, distracted. It, it's it's it, it, it's a really clear, specific, achievable task, if you want to call it. Do that. our listeners have to look at Claude Monet's water no, lilies? No, or? Yeah, they, you can you can do self experiments. If you want to replicate the study, it has That's, to be. Can you take any art that you like? Does, is that what it's all about? Or? I, so this Google art, online art thing, mm-hmm. um, which I'm, I'm not crazy about, it gives you awards every time you do the most basic action. It's like, congratulations, you just earned a badge for looking at a painting. Here's some dopamine. That, yeah, yeah, don't give me a badge for looking at a painting. <laughs> then it was like, congratulations, you zoomed in. 
on a painting. It's like, that's not, that's nothing special. Congratulations. You just breathed. Yeah. Oh, and then it was, then I got confused because it was, um, they let you do street view of a cloud Monet. I thought, what, what does that even mean? How would you be on the street looking? No, they put you inside a museum in, inside the museum where it's hanging. That's really pretty interesting. I liked it. But then you, you it alerts you that you got a badge for that too. So ignore that aspect, but they've got tons of art in there from all over the world. And it's probably likely one of them was Van Gogh, a Van Gogh I'd never seen, and I I enjoyed singing. I think it probably boosted his bedroom. My mood. Uh, oh, was it was it was one. it was some trees, some poplar trees or some sort of trees. Okay. And again, uh, the f- final final thing I'll say on this, possibly this works because it's only two minutes. I've been in museums before where by the end of it, I feel exhausted, hungry, my blood sugar's low. I feel kind of depressed. My knees hurt. You're you're reminded of how little you know about the world and history. As, as opposed to your hips, what are you talking about? Anyway, two minutes with a Cloud Monet seems to work. The rest is up to you. And do it on a desktop. Yeah. Any okay. other questions, tips? What's your favorite art? What art do you want to look at for two minutes a day? <laughs> Let us know. SUDW.com. everyone out there, you're probably pretty convinced that what you're experiencing right now as, as reality is really there. It, it's, you're experiencing it for what it is. Mm-hmm. So if you, I don't know, if you're confronted with a, a dog running toward you. Um, or a radio host that I'm looking straight at right now. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you are real, Gabe. This is my reality. Yeah, you just got a haircut. So it's looking, looking good. Thanks. Got it this morning. I'm, I'm feeling good. Huge psychological bonus. The this haircut. is not cycle. This is not philosophical mumbo jumbo that you're talking about. No, this is a study. What is real? What yeah. is real anyway? No. Yeah, phil- philosophy students at, at university do. I was going to say, so, yeah, we're in a college dorm room right now. No, this is research. Okay, from the University College London, um, that it really strongly implies that your reality, the way you experience it, is not always necessarily the way it truly is, and that it's connected to how strong your imagination is. Science Unscripted. Hi, my name is Dr. Nadine Dijkstra, and together with my colleague, Professor T. Fleming, uh, we just uh, published a paper on uh, imagination and reality monitoring, how we decide what's real and what is imagined. What was the primary conclusion, Nadine, of, of your recent research? So the primary conclusion was that imagination and reality are not categorically different, but they differ in degrees, in strength. So if you imagine seeing a tree, for example, something very similar happens in your brain as if you would actually see that tree. And the main difference is the strength of activation, not the way the brain is activated. And if I understood your paper correctly, the more vividly I imagine that tree close my eyes and I, I can just, I can see this tree, the more likely it is that I then later believe I've actually seen that tree, that I've seen it in reality? Yeah, this is true. Yeah. So our research is not about memory, but it's about in the moment. If you have your eyes open and you imagine a tree very vividly, then you might sometimes think it's actually there. So you might sometimes hallucinate that tree. So participants were instructed to imagine very simple uh, shapes while looking at 
kind of dynamic static noise, uh, which is just pixels moving. And they had to imagine with their eyes open um, as if the stimulus was appearing in, on the screen, but it wasn't there. They just had to imagine. And then they had to tell us how vivid their imagination was. But then on the last trial, unbeknownst to the participant, we secretly also presented uh, a picture that was either the same to the one they were imagining or a different one. And then we asked, hey, on the last trial, did you actually see something or not? And what did they say? <laughs> so w what happened was a little bit complicated, but basically when people were imagining the same picture as the one that we presented to them, they said that their imagination became more vivid. And if they said their imagination become, became more vivid, then they were more likely to say they saw something real. So what we can conclude from that is that imagination and reality got completely mixed up together in the brain. And the only way that participants were able to dissociate the two was by saying, you know, if it's very vivid, it's probably real. Otherwise, it's imagined. I don't mean to go philosophical on this, but does this shape our perception of reality or does this say something about what reality actually is? <laughs> I think it, it gives us some, some hints, which is, you know, what other research also shows that we are not just perceiving reality as is at all. So as humans, we are constantly using what we think about the world, what we believe about the world to interpret our sensory input. Um, so it's never just like a camera. It's never an objective, an entirely objective uh, reflection of the of reality. How would our listeners around the world know if they are in possession of a really vivid imagination? I'm, I'm, I'm convinced some of our listeners definitely are, based on the emails, um, and and that they would therefore... And a lot of them in Canada are waking up at like four in the morning to listen to this <laughs> yeah, program. Yeah. So. No, yeah, and that they would therefore... Uh, not be perceiving reality as it is, that, the, that their powerful imaginations are warping it. How would they know? So in terms of knowing whether your imagination is very vivid or not, there is a online questionnaire that you can fill out, which is called the Vividness of Visual Imagery Questionnaire, VVIQ. If you Google that, I'm sure you can find it online. But then to what extent that warps your reality is very difficult to say because you only have access to what you experience, so it, you, you don't really have a reference frame to, to see, how, to, to kind of tell how you experience it differently to other people. I think for that, you would really need kind of careful psychological testing. Um, yeah. And that was Dr. Nadine Dijkstra. Uh, she's a cognitive neuroscientist who investigates mental imagery, visual perception, and how our brains differentiate between the two. She's usually at the University College London, and we were just talking to her there from her home in the Netherlands. Let's take that test. The, the, I want the VVIQ. Yep, let me just switch. Because she told us uh, when the, after the interview finished that her VVIQ is 30. Uh, you know me, I, I want to be better than everyone else. So see sure, can, see if I can better, Why not? better that. <laughs> Why not spend your life competing <laughs> in meaning, meaningless tasks? Uh, it, for all of you out there, I've pulled this up as a PDF. It's quick if you want to test it. It's four pages. Gabe, visualize a rising sun. Got it. Consider carefully the picture that comes before your mind's eye. Yeah. Then rate the following items. Yeah. The sun is rising above the horizon into a hazy sky. No image at all. Vague and dim. Moderately clear and vivid. Clear and reasonably vivid. Perfectly clear and as vivid as normal vision. Moderately clear. 
The sky clears and surrounds the sun with blueness. No image at all, vague and dim, moderately clear, clear and reasonably vivid, or perfectly clear. Vague and dim. Hmm, really? Okay. Well, the blue didn't mix up, because I had a really red, really deeply red and orange sun coming up, and then the blue kind of got vague. Well, I think this is supposed to alter your imagery. Oh. So you're supposed to... You're... That, yeah, that certainly altered my imagery, yeah. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so let me let me ask you again. If you are picturing the sky clears and surrounds the sun with blueness, mm-hmm. is that no image at all? Vague, moderately clear, clear and reasonably vivid, or perfectly clear? Yeah, well, it's it's not perfectly clear, but it's it's vivid. Okay. It's yeah. not vague and dim. Sorry. Okay, yeah. No, vague I'm just, and dim I'm just, was wrong. I'm just, I'm just looking at the instructions. It, it, not vague it, and dim at all. It doesn't really clarify that but I believe we're changing your imagery here. You did, yeah, yeah. Okay, no, yeah, of course we are. Listen to this one. Clouds. A storm blows up. Oh my God. This sounds like the Rhineland. With flashes of lightning, really sounds like the Rhineland. Mm. No image at all, vague and dim, moderately clear and vivid. I'm, no, I'm watching the weather happen in front of my eyes. Yeah, I can I can see that pretty Cle- clearly. Clear and reasonably vivid or it, perfectly clear? Well, I'm not going to go with, per- I, you know, not perfect, but yeah, the one before that. We just, what, uh, not long ago had, had a thunderstorm roll through, so yeah, maybe some recency bias or some, some help from uh, Mother Nature. Final one here, Gabe. Yeah. You're going to like this one a lot. Mm-hmm. A rainbow appears. <gasps> No image at all, vague and dim, moderately clear, clear and reasonably vivid. I've got it. Perfectly clear. I've got a double. I've got a full, full bow. Really? Yeah. So those are the qu- kinds of questions. It's a total, I, I, if I'm doing the math right, total of about 20 questions, and you can test how vivid your imagination is, and, and by we- yeah, by extrapolation now because of the study, the extent to which you perceive reality as it truly is. So when I'm trying to imagine something and then I look at a picture, an image, my mind is skewed by that image? Let me, let me just go to the conclusion. Uh, the conclusion here, and I'm going to quote directly from the paper, by the way, this is published in Nature Communications. All of you can read it. What is, it, what is the paper called? Subjective Signal Strength Distinguishes Reality from Imagination. And it says, Our findings suggest that imagery and perception are subjectively intermixed. How, then, do we ever determine whether something is real? According to our model, this is achieved by simply evaluating whether the total strength of a signal exceeds a reality threshold based on the assumption that imagery is generally weaker or less vivid than perception. Such a model predicts that reality monitoring should be worse in people with more vivid imagery. In line with this idea, we found that the frequency of source confusions, mistaking reality for imagination or imagination for reality, was associated with generally higher imagery vividness across subjects. The confusion between the two seems to be connected to stronger um, stronger imagination. Full right. stop. So for those of you with strong imaginations out there, what what is the question here? Or is, is this a warning to you that, you know, don't... Don't skew reality too much? No, I, th- I, I think it's this. And I think that's what, what interested me in the subject, in the research. We all should be aware of how fallible 
uh, we are in general. <laughs> we, we really are fallible. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times we, we've talked on this show and most people are aware of the fact that our memories are very fallible and, and malleable. Yeah. Something that is a clear memory now will change 10 years from now. We all, we all kind of know that. What's different is this is talking about straight up reality as you experience right it. Right now. Right now, today, that, that's, that is somehow connected to the strength of your imagination. And what I would be wondering for all of you out there is if you think you might be one of those people, if you, if you have really vivid imaginations, go ahead and take the test and figure out if does that hold true when you take the test? And, and do you get a high IQ score? on the vividness of your visual imagery, does that line up? Because if not, then it could be that this test, which I, I guess has just turned 50 years old, happy 50th birthday mm -hmm. to the test. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe it's not that great after all. Good job, Connor. That, that, sounded, that sounded really good. Thanks, Gabe. Let's, let's go. Thanks, Gabe. We're <laughs> SU at DW.com. DW, uh, DW, Science Unscripted. DW. Made for Minds.